Hello, I'm your host, Beth Barilla. Each month, I talk with changemakers about the joys, challenges, strategies, and possibilities in working for social justice in a variety of contexts. Welcome to Changemaking Connections, the show where we talk with change leaders about how to support deep transformation in our lives, communities, and organizations. In this episode, I'm so excited to be talking to Dr. Keith Edwards, a colleague of mine for a long time, been admiring your work for a long time. Uh, Keith helps transformational leaders make the complex uncomplicated for leadership, learning, and equity. Over the past 25 years, Keith has spoken and consulted at more than 300 colleges and universities, presented more than 200 programs at national conferences, and written more than 25 articles or book chapters on sexual violence prevention, men's identity, and social justice education. His research, writing, and speaking have received national awards and recognition. His scholarship has been featured in many publications and is incorporated into the diversity and leadership training programs at companies including Pricewater. House Cooper and Microsoft. His TEDx talk on preventing sexual violence has been viewed around the world. And of course, your new book, very exciting, Unmasking Towards Authentic Masculinity. And we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Hi, Keith. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for the invitation. This is is a a treat and a delight and a little intimidating. So... Oh, I'm always nervous before these episodes because yeah. I'm always talking to people I admire so much. Oh, well, that's that's what's intimidating. So we'll try and <laughs> um, we'll try and live up to that. But I'm really excited about your podcast and getting this going and the people you're going to interview. And you're always someone who I love to learn from. And and so this is great. Let's yeah. get into it. Let's get into it. I feel the same about you. So, of course, I just introduced you and we'll put mm-hmm. your bio in the show notes. But I'd like to ask guests to tell us about a little bit about the work you're doing right now and what you're excited about. Yeah, um, I'm excited about so many things. That's part of the problem is I get so Mm -hmm. excited about so many different things. I'm really excited about the book, Unmasking. That's kind of the culmination of 15 years of research, Mm -hmm. going back to my dissertation, interviewing college men about what it means to be a man. But then I've interviewed them every five years since then. So, yeah, I was really uh, impressed at how long that you maintain yeah. those relationships and work. Yeah, five years, 10 years, and a 15-year follow-up. And the next one will be in 2026, which is coming up sooner than one would anticipate. They're, uh, they're, so there's a lot going on over life. And now they were college students, and now they're parents and partners and off in their careers. And so learning different things about that. So I'm excited about that. And now that the book is out, working on the audiobook soon and and turning some of that content into presentations and talks and things that I'll be kicking off and doing this fall and into the future. I'm also working with a colleague around a leading for equity kind of coaching program for a cohort that I had a super energizing conversation with this morning. So I'm super excited about that uh, and what we're creating and we'll be sort of uh, unveiling soon. And then I'm working with a lot of campuses around uh, curricular development and some corporate and nonprofits around their uh, DEI curriculum, because oftentimes those have really good things, but they were all created by lots of different people. And there's no kind of coherence, right? Moving people through a process, right? Module one was done by completely different people who did module three and they're using different language and things. So some alignment and uh, I'm I'm a coach. And so Uh, One of the things when I left my full-time campus role at McAllister eight years ago was I got my coaching certification, and I have just loved that. I love coaching leaders and clients about their life and their leadership, but I bring that into, it has shifted how I facilitate workshops, how I talk to my kids, how I have uh, conversations with neighbors. It has really shifted uh, how I be in the world, not just what I do during a coaching call. So that's been really great. Yeah, thank you for that. Part of why I wanted to talk with you is because you have done such longstanding work in um, masculinity, both deconstructing harmful parts and also co-creating more empowering modes of masculinity, and also that you you work in higher ed, you're a coach and a consultant, you work in leadership, so you cross a lot of sectors in many ways. And for listeners, we'll put all the show notes for how you can follow Keith in the show. I'm sorry, we'll put the links for how you can follow Keith in the show notes. But maybe we can talk a little bit here about how do you think of leadership when you're coaching or you're working with um, people on masculinity? What does leadership mean to you? Mm-hmm. Uh, leadership, I think the most important thing I learned about leadership is that it is a process, not a position. And I hear a lot of young people, um, 
who feel like leadership isn't for them because I'm not the director, I'm not the CEO, I'm not in charge. And I get that. And I also feel like I see them having a lot of influence on their peers in the organization. And, um, you know, I think one of the things I've learned when we're when we're not paying attention to certain things, it doesn't mean we're not doing them. It just means we're mindless about how we're doing. We're not aware. We're not conscious. And so thinking about how we're leading from all places uh, in the organization. And my coaching is really uh, not, um, I mean, sometimes it touches on this, but uh, I coach college presidents. I coach CEOs of nonprofits. I'm coaching people doing lots of different things, independent scholars and activists. And I'm really coaching them around everything in their life. So we talk about um, their work and a promotion and do I want to move to this role or that role? And we also talk about their parenting and we talk about their conflict with their partner and we talk about how they haven't worked out in six months and that's really important to their mental well-being and how do I get back on this? And we talk about their affairs and we talk about their spiritual journeys and we talk about all of these different things. Um, and I think what is really interesting to me is I, I, I feel like I kind of have the behind the scenes footage because they tell you the truth, because that's yeah. what they're paying you for. Right, right. They tell yeah. you the real truth. Um, and then you get to see sort of what um, their truth is similar to yours and what seems to be true of not this person or that person, but us as, as human beings across a lot of different roles, a lot of different identities, a lot of different life experiences. And I think it has it has made me aware of some of the things that we think are social dynamic influenced are of course and then they're they're also a human experience i had one coaching client and said you know i come from a very my my cultural background is super salient and i associate a lot of my strengths to that cultural background i associate a lot of my challenges to that cultural background and i wanted to work with you because you don't bring that and what you've helped me realize is that some of that is just human and not about <laughs> Um, that particular cultural background. And she had sort of assigned a lot of, um, sort of given her power away by assigning a lot of her strengths and talents and characteristics to that. And then also a lot of the challenges you had associated with, well, that's because I was raised in this cultural context and that's what we teach us. And I'm like, I have white men who make a lot of money who have the same thing going on. Um, and that was really kind of uh, enlightening to her. So I love that kind of behind the scenes. I guess your question is, um, what do I think about leadership? I think leadership is is a process of making the world better. And you can do that in formal roles. You can do that in how you parent. You can do that in running for school board. You can do that in what you post on social media in a given week. It doesn't have to be a complete change and shift that we all have some responsibility and how do we connect with that, but just, are you making the world better? And we might disagree about what better is. Uh, we might disagree about strategies to get there, but I think as long as we're working toward making the world better, um, then, then that's leadership. And we can do that in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like the focus. Uh, I also agree that leadership is a process and I'm, you know, thinking about leading, um, I also noticed that because uh, I teach a lot about feminist uh, and inclusive leadership and do a lot of I also do consulting and coaching work. And um, I find especially some of my students don't identify with the word leader, as you were talking about, because they, like you said, assign it as um, a positional, like an organizational position that they don't hold or they see it as the, a more traditional model of leadership that is like a singular person that is up they're doing something in particular that is somehow different from the rest of us, that there are other models of leadership, which you use the term influence, right? And the, uh, the process of working towards a better world and then having conversations with family or neighbors or defining yourself. And that example you gave, what struck me is that one of the challenges in, I think, social justice work and something that I see come up in my own coaching is ways of honoring differences, whether cultural or sexual identity or other identity differences in a way that don't erase those differences while also finding um, points of commonality and connection that are the human experience as a collective. And that I think claiming our own stories and the ability to in some ways write our own stories within the context that we inherit them, but also recognizing we have some agency 
in shaping what those stories are, especially as we present them, as, as opposed to how it's projected onto us, um, is also a kind of leadership. Um, particularly if you um, if you don't see other people um, recognizing your story the way you recognize it. Um, and, uh, yeah, and even in your book, I was noticing, um, you know, the trajectory of stories and the, your participants kind of speaking their own truths and finding some empowerment and realizing they aren't, weren't the only ones experiencing those truths. Yeah. Yeah. But what you're describing sounds like leadership of me, uh, leading the self right through this journey. And, and how do I, I don't want to take on these external scripts that, women are supposed to think, look, do this, or black folks are supposed to think, do this, but wanting to make sense of that for, for me. And I think that, 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 and, and that's a, that's a journey because I think there are some people who come to some of these identities and it's either new to them or it's a new awareness to them. And they really want to throw themselves and invest in it and immerse in it. And really everything kind of becomes about that identity and that's a healthy thing to go through. And then other folks are a place where, yeah, I've done that. And now I don't want that to be the thing that defines me. I want it to be one of the many things. And maybe bringing that in with other identities or a role or or other things and making this sort of all about me. And I think that's one of the things I like about coaching is I get to meet that person wherever they're at. And if they want to immerse themselves and really explore all that this means to me, then I get to support them in, in doing that. And if they want to be a more integrated place in, in moving away from sort of being defined by that particular identity and integrate in with these other things, then I get to help them do that. And I think we get a lot in the broader culture of binary thinking it's either this or this one of integrated is better versus immersion is better. And you just get to be where you're at. And, um, you know, folks in the long journey say there's so much value in that. I'm not there oh, now, but absolutely. being yeah, there totally. was incredible. And yeah. now I'm here or I remember that and, and sort of moving through. And you pointed to another both and that, that I just bump up all the time, which is, um, the sociological versus the psychological or the group versus the individual. And I think I, there's a, there's a lot in social justice circles about we shouldn't focus on the individual because it's all systems. It's all systems. It's all systems, right? We shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't teach people to be resilient to the difficulties in the world. We should change the world so they don't have to be so resilient to those things. Uh, in the meantime, while you're going to change the world, which might take a bit, what about this 13 year old? who's got to navigate the world as it is. And I think that binary between, is it, you know, when we only focus on the individual, that's troubling because then these systems go unaddressed and ignored. And, and, and but, but it's just as troubling to say, well, forget all the people. <laughs> Let's just change this. And whatever, you know, we'll worry about them later. You know, I send my 13-year-old daughter off into the world every day. I work on changing patriarchy and sexism. In the meantime, I'm going to teach her how to navigate that effectively right and so how do we tend to the individual and the social the the psychological the sociological the individual and the group because if all we do is tend to the group level stuff the message is you have no agency right but if all we do is focus on the individual then we say all this is your fault right right, right? and so that's, Neither a, that's is a, accurate yeah right and i think that's a both and that, I agree. Um, is super, super important. And I hear a colleague of ours, Rachel Wagner, who said to me maybe 20 years ago, Bell's Hooks says that binaries are always dominator thinking. And so every time I hear it's either this or that, or it's either or, I just hear Rachel saying that Bell Hooks thing. And then I just go, what's the both and? And the both and is always wiser and less pedantic and less didactic and less ideological and more human and more more liberation right and i think the we want an anti-oppression lens to analyze what is going on but the goal isn't to recognize all of the oppression in the world <laughs> the goal is liberation joy freedom justice like what does that look like and i think a lot of folks get stuck into the anti-oppression analysis as the end and then you just pay attention to all the horrible things going on, which you need to know and recognize. But then what's the next step? But if you just jump to 
joy and liberation without understanding these things, right. you can do a lot of harm along yeah, the way. Really right. So that's yeah. another both and that I'm really rooting what I'm doing in a lot. Yeah, yeah. That really resonates with me that I've often said really anti-anything is not my goal. That anti-oppression, anti-racism, anti-patriarchy, I think those are all necessary steps. But ultimately, I want racial justice. I want gender justice and liberation. And that requires, I think, an under, a, a both and, and an understanding of how the individual, the collective, the structural all work together. A complex analysis of where people do or don't have agency and how to um, how to claim the agency you do have and broaden it to be more expansive for everyone. And then and then imagining future we don't have right now. Right. And living into it as much as possible. It's something that people like Adrian Marie Brown and others have really emphasized and deepened for me this idea that we deserve you know, hope and pleasure and joy now, not just when we get liberation. And it's not a joy that is kind of hierarchy or oversimplistic or doesn't recognize the harm in the world, but it's one that's deeply rooted in that awareness and still claims moments. And in those moments or in those possibilities, we can co-create and, and yeah. dismantle both, co-create something yeah. better and dismantle I'm so glad you mentioned Adrienne Marie Brown because every time I listen to her, I just feel like she doesn't only have a vision of liberation. She is living it. She is really living it in her, not just in what she does, but in her, her mindset. And it's all, every time I hear her, it's so inspiring about what that looks like. And right. It's not a Pollyanna. It's not a naive, the richness and the vibrancy and the resourcefulness you can just see the energy that comes from that. And I think a lot of more traditional approaches to anti-oppression and other things are, are just a drag and a bummer and energy draining. And, and then we end up doing this, who's the better and competition and, and things. And she just is not interested in that. And I think it's just such a great modeling for me of what would liberation look like and what would what would that what would the world look like like if we got rid of racism what would my world as a white person who benefits from a lot of systemic uh, racial privilege what would my world look like how would my world be better and i think for me um that notion of enlightened self-interest about how do white how would white people benefit from a world without racism against people of color like my relationships would be better. The economy would be better that I would benefit from. My own sense of myself would be better and more accurate. Crime would go down. Employ unemployment would go down. I would pay less in taxes because there'd be all these things. So that you, from a very economic lens, but also a relational lens, but also an individual lens. And so for me, that notion of enlightened self-interest has always been, for me, the pivot from doing for the oppressed to what's my enlightened self-interest. Now I'm showing up with in collaboration and what I'm doing it for, I need credit, approval, validation. And when I have that enlightened self-interest as well, I, I don't cause it's about freedom and joy. And then when, when there's, when you misstep, which I do all the time uh, and you get criticism, and you're doing it for them, it's easy to be like, well, this is too hard. I give up. I was I'm trying to do you a favor, right? I'm not going to do that anymore because you don't, you're not as appreciative as I want you to be. Whereas if, if it's about our collective liberation, then it's like, well, thanks for the feedback. That will really help me do better next time. That's helpful for me. Thank you. And you go out there and try and do better again. And you go out and try and do better again. So I think that enlightened self interest to me is really critical I just saw the Barbie movie last week. And I think for me, uh, I have a very different lens that, than a lot of people watching Ken get excited about living in a patriarchal world where men are in power. Because he hadn't really experienced that. He got excited about that. And then he was living it. And he's like, this is not good for me. <laughs> this is, I, I'm in charge, but uh, this is not better. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what that, cultural phenomenon, right? That's not an understatement. 
it's going to be one of the highest grossing movies of all yeah, time. It's definitely become a cultural moment. And, uh, right? and uh, so what does that do about a whole generation of young people who learned about patriarchy from the Barbie movie and learned about that, you know, watching them walk down the street and he's excited and she's like, all of a sudden I feel afraid. I feel like people are looking at me and it's not in a good way. And oh, what is that? It'd be really interesting. But I love that Ken was like, oh, my turn to be in charge. And I get that. And then he was like, oh, no, this is not what I wanted. I wanted, he want, what he wanted was connection. And I think the culture steers a lot of us away from our yearning for connection into competition. And I think he also wanted a sense of worth in and of himself, not just like as arm candy. And I think that also is something that a lot of people long for. I, I do want to circle back to something, because um, as you were talking about dismantling whiteness, I was also acknowledging that people will be listening this, to this on a podcast, whereas we're mm -hmm. looking at each other on video yeah, yeah. and we, we know each other. We yep. both identify as white. And mm -hmm. um, so we both get benefits from white privilege. And I do also believe, as you mentioned, that all the systems harm even the people who are in dominant groups, not to the degree that they harm people in marginalized it's groups. It's not the same. And not in it's the, not same, the same, same way. Nope. But there is a greater possibility. In fact, in my in my new book, second edition that's coming out in December, I was I've been thinking a lot about reframing this notion of belonging that a lot of people have written about how when you're in the dominant group, right, right, whites get belonging in whiteness and will often resist challenging other whites for fear of of jeopardizing that belonging, which I have seen happen many times. But I also think that's a really shallow notion of belonging. It's one that's sold really powerfully and it comes with really clear privileges, but there's a deeper belonging underneath all of that, right. which Real enables connection. everybody's connection yeah. and humanity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, let's flip this a little bit to a story from the book about masculinity, but tie these together. Um, one of my participants has a great quote. I don't have it in front of me, so I'll, I'll paraphrase. But he's talking about this mask and performing masculinity, performing a traditional masculinity and the metaphor of the mask. And he says, you know, I, I wear that mask because I want people to love me. But I'm realizing that if, if you love me for the mask, you don't love me. So if I can get rid of the mask, which is vulnerable and scary, and you love that, then you love me. And I think I was connecting that because if, uh, if I have belonging because I'm white in a white-constructed, white-valued society, I don't belong, right? You don't value me. You're valuing that I show up in this way and I don't, I don't challenge things. Whereas if we could let, right, that if we could let go of that and we value everybody and it's not based on a performative manhood or falling in line with white supremacy or, or whatever, then that's a, a truer belonging. So, you know, Brene Brown talks about belonging isn't, it's not fitting in. Right. It's not changing yourself to adjust so that you get a sense of belonging. It's being true belonging. And I think you're pointing to racism, patriarchy, all of these things as a way that says, if you fit in, you can belong. Right. If you if you'll if you'll be along with whiteness, then you can belong. But that's not true belonging. That's something. No, else. it isn't. And I can see why some people who hold different identities and have been fighting against an entrenched harmful system for decades would be really distrustful of some of this because too often similar rhetoric has been used, I think, to shore things up. I think similarly to how we were talking about the identity development models and people go relate to them in different ways, I think people also relate to social change work in different ways for very good reasons. And I think the, the change process is so complex and it needs all of us. And chances are it needs most of those different methods. Some of them, I think, and, and I think about how some of the anti-oppression work that came before me is precisely why I can be having these conversations right now, because they've created some of the changes that then allow for us to be able to reframe in certain ways or go deeper in different ways or broad in different paths of doing things. And they also provide some accountability, like, am I bypassing in ways that I don't mean to, or, um, you know, those constant checks, which, you know, one of the things that I've 
really tried to be a little intentional about in this podcast is me just not posing the questions, but also guests inviting uh, questions as well. And your question was about how coaching, because we both work as coaches as well, how coaching, meaning skills, trainings, practices, mindsets have shifted how we do social justice work. And you've already talked about some of that. For me, one of the ways it's done it both as a coach and as like, I think coaching has informed my social justice work and my social justice work has informed my coaching. It's a iterative cycle. And for me, one of the things it offers in both dimensions are thought partners, right? To work through possibilities to imagine differently. And particularly if I'm working with somebody who's in leadership and wanting to create some changes or take some risks or think through different ways of doing things, they can do that with their teams, but also there's a recognition that they hold power in ways that might complicate the thought partnership. And so having somebody that isn't in that power dynamic be and who is informed by social justice, be able to talk through that, help them think through implications and come up with practices that allow, let them practice and live both in their workplace and also in their lives, like in an integrated way, right? Aligned with who and how they want to be instead of like, I'm one way at work and I'm one way at home. Coaching becomes a really powerful place for that to happen. And I noticed you even said that, that, you know, we talk about work, but we also talk about parenting and Everything. all the things. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering, one of the things I find is the more powerful the coaching client, the more they like to be bossed around and given direct feedback because they don't get that. Or even if they do get it, they're like, they don't trust it. I'm thinking about a college president. I mean, people say, you, you did a great job. They go, well, did I? Or are you just you know, trying to carry favor. And even some of the criticism, I wish you would have done it this way. Well, are you just, is that real feedback or are you just challenging authority? I don't, I, you know, there's just, I, I've watched too many college presidents walk around the university event alone and to be able to say, yeah, don't do that. What? No, nobody talks to me like this. I'm like, oh, is that a problem? No, I love it. Why don't you? <laughs> and just being honest and, and direct, um, is really great. And I, I that the integrated is, is I, I love that too, because I, people are applying their parenting lesson to their supervision and they're applying that leadership thing that they learned at the last conference to their own personal life. And they're, they're building this in. And I think so often, I think capitalism really bifurcates work versus life, which is a dumb thing to say to say my work is on half the scale and my life is on the other half of the scale like that notion of balance doesn't make any as my daughter used to say that doesn't make any pence <laughs> you know work is a part of life and how do we and you just see people when they start to integrate that in and not bifurcate themselves and bring all those things together and start living in alignment in different roles in different ways the energy that comes in. And I think some of that is energy that they get. And some of that is friction that is removed, right? Energy that they're no longer spending, walling this off from that and keeping that separate. And don't, don't talk to me about this. And those are the people you just show up and they just look like they're fully present. They're fully authentic. They're not perfect. They've got, they've got flaws. They don't do everything right. And they're fine with that. They're comfortable with that. You can point it out and they're, they take that as helpful. They're going, yeah, I know, but I see it differently. And yeah. Oh, how nice it, if we had a world where everybody could be that and show up <laughs> with that presence and that integration without cost, without yeah. the costs that currently exist. Anyway. Yeah. 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 What struck me as you were talking about the university president walking around alone because the connections were hard to trust was just that what immediately flashed in my mind was kind of individualized model of leadership that in some ways in a liberated world maybe needs to be reframed to something more collective, more power with. And that's not to say that all hierarchy is bad, although that that is my initial, I do have a lot of skeptical and distrust of many hierarchies. And it's not to say that some people who are presidents or in charge of organizations or whatever don't want that, but the way that power is currently structured. People angle to get the president's ear and people, um, you know, and then the connection is hard to trust. And what might be the conditions, even within the hierarchies that we currently have, 
where we can move towards some power within a way where the connection can be trusted. I don't, I don't necessarily have answers to that because some of that is context dependent on a lot of different factors. But what are some of the other ways coaching has informed or shifted your social justice work or questions it's raised for you? Um, I think it has, this is something that I always knew, but I didn't do very well, which is I had my master coach who coached me. She said, when you're, when you're coaching, you're, you're, you're telling, you're, you're referencing this book or you're, you're mentioning this comes from this Ted talk and it's, it's really great, but, um, it's distracting. And I said, she said, I want you to be the coach who doesn't know anything. And I think about that often and bringing that to social justice facilitation, I think there was a time where I needed to know all the things to be the expert, to have read all the things, to have the model, to be able to answer every question that might possibly come up. And it is, that is stressful to feel like you have to be able to answer anything. <laughs> and I think I've coaching has, again, I knew this was a good idea. I, I didn't really know how to do it, but to release my need to be the expert, to have the expertise, to have all the answers and to be in the moment. And I think I come in with a lot less content than I used to. It has gotten easier and more effective. And I feel like coaching has made running meetings easier and more effective. It has made leading workshops easier and more effective. And I'm addicted to easier and more effective. Like, I want more of that, right? Because things are so complicated and I can make things really complicated. It has just allowed me to trust in the the knowing of the person, right? Which is what coaching is all about. Um, I coach college presidents. I have no idea how to be a good college president. Like I've, I've never done it. I have no idea. But that's not why I coach them. I, I ask them questions. I, I prompt things. So but to, to trust the groups, and I was just with a group uh, last week, I was talking about communicating across difference. And, and before I would have, you know, 12 points about communicating across difference, and here's the ways to do it. But I also know, like, every interaction is different, and you t uh, there's so many differences, and how could you ever? And so I just had them do this exercise where think about a time where you communicated across conf with, in conflict across difference, and it went really well. Write down the three things that helped that go well. So just appreciative inquiry. And then I said, now share at your table. And as your table, come up with three to five things that you heard that help conflict go well across difference. And then we had every table of the 18 tables share out their three to five things, collected all of them. It's going to make a beautiful world someday. But I didn't need to be the expert on communicating across difference because I had brilliance in the room and how do I get that out of them? Which is really a Paulo Freire popular education way of saying it rather than being the, the banking model, the depositing knowledge. How do you trust that the knowledge is in the room? And each of those people didn't believe they knew how to navigate conflict across difference, but they had some knowledge. And then you get that out of each person and you share it. And now the whole room Right? Each person maybe has one good thing or three good things or two good things, but then the whole room is packed with brilliance. And how do we pull that out and share that out with everybody? So coaching has helped me do a little bit more of that in individual conversations. It's helped me do that in facilitation. It has helped me, me trust the learner more and better facilitate and pull that out of them and share that out in, in useful ways. Yeah. 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 As you were speaking, I was thinking that's a lot of what I, that, that trusting the people in the room, creating spaces for people to share their knowledge and collaborate, creating spaces for people to offer what they do know. I think, um, I don't know if I've used the word pull out, but kind of seed the knowledge that's in the room, learn from each other, and then recognize that it's generative together. There's a synergy that starts to happen when people can offer it up and learn from one another. And that model and people, of collaborative, yeah. Yeah, and people trust it more, right? Yeah, they have this an investment is, is in it, the they totally with, trust it, yeah. Yeah, well, this is one of the things I learned with coaching. Like when I would meet with a student who was struggling and I would say, here are the things I think you need to do. Yeah. Um, even if my ideas were really smart, they go, do I trust this guy? What does he know? I don't know. Does he care about me? Is he, I don't know. And if I say, well, you're struggling and it's a longer process than this, but what are the five things you think you need to do? If they come up with those, 
they're super invested in making that happen. And even if their ideas aren't as good as mine, they will actually work better because they're invested in their brilliance, their being able to figure out, they're able to do that. And so if I would have given that group 12 brilliant, well-researched ways of communicating across difference, they would, they, you evaluate. They're like, well, I don't know. Do I like 10? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's me. But when I say, look what you just shared, they go, well, look at this. Look what we did. This is great. I can't wait to put this to use. It's a really different dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also something that is at the core of my coaching, this idea of trusting the client to know their what they need and to help them get there. You're like, you're a partner to help them get there. And for me, it's about how I show up in the space, like embodying my own integrity and um, my own kind of embodied awareness and being open and present with them and in the dynamic relationship that gets created within the coaching session um, so that they can trust themselves enough to figure out and trust me to be witness to it. And also a practice of curiosity. I think that over the years of being a social justice educator and practitioner, I had learned a lot of, I've seen the patterns of defenses so often, as I'm sure you have too, that I come- well, Mostly in myself, but yeah. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> yes. And I come armored, yeah. um, ready for them. And when for I, sure. either in myself or when others, I see it, then I'm almost ready to pounce. Mm -hmm. And the curiosity piece has helped me kind of in my talk with Carrie Kelly, we talked about leaning back, this idea of like, instead of like moving forward, right? This, it helps me lean back in a way that offers some curiosity, like, oh, where did that come from? What's that about? And it doesn't mean you don't hold somebody accountable, but there's a, there's a way in which it, it engages that for in, for me, it has engaged people in a learning process differently in a way that then helps them dismantle instead of being on the defensive. And I'm conscious of how my own identity probably plays a role in some of that. Um, and that's not to say that the other practice doesn't also sometimes have a role, right? There's a, that both and, it's it's situational, but it has broadened my tool belt, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Renee Brown has a line about strong back, soft front. Yeah. And yep. you were just really embodying that, right? Yes. I'm not going to come at you, but there's a, I, I, I can be here. I can be flexible. I can be with you. I can, and there's something behind it. There is substance, right? It's not whatever you say goes, there's some substance. And, and I think, you know, my coaching program taught me, and I think this has to do with how I've been socialized as man, how I've been socialized as a white person to focus on what I'm doing. What are you going to do in the session? What are you going to do in the thing? What are you going to do when you're giving the talk? And my coaching said, you're being is just as important as what you're doing. And I pay so much more attention to my being than I ever did. And I find that if you can get your being right, as you said, how I show up, how I'm present, right? And one of the beings is anticipating resistance and then <laughs> reading into it and then pouncing on it, right? You can manifest that resistance. But being and being open to that, one of Adrienne Marie Brown's things that I she said that I just love and need to live into more and more is less preparation, more presence. And boy, every time I over-prepare, then I come in with, you know, 120 slides for a 30-minute thing, and then I've prepared, I put all this work in, you're going to get to all those slides, whatever. And the less I prepare, the more present I am in the room. And I'm like, well, we're not even getting to those 20 slides. That's fine. What's important is what's here. This is rich. We're going to go here. Your focus is here. Be present. That just continues to serve me all the time. Me too. Yeah. No. Yeah, me too. So, okay, we found some points of commonality here in how we approach things. And so I'm curious, one of the things that's intriguing me, particularly as I work with coaching clients and my university students in very different ways, is how we live contradictions, right? So we might, we might have this idea or hope of what a liberatory world is. We might have a sense of our politics and yet we might very often are living and working in institutions that don't allow us to live pure politics. How do we navigate those contradictions in a way that helps us stay aligned with what we care about and have some integrity? I'm interested in having these conversations with people. What comes to mind for you? Uh, for me, it's the both and, right? And, mm -hmm. and the both and that. Like, let's not pretend that this is the utopia I have envisioned, because it's not. There's some reality there. But how do I live that utopia even though it's not fully realized yet. And I think this is one of the things that Adrian Brown does so, so beautifully. 
how do I recognize? I, I'm not allowed to do that. The systems are set up, but I can still daydream about that, right? I can still talk to you as if that were true. I, I think, um, you know, the civil rights, they, they talked about, the civil rights movement talked about the beloved community, which was their goal and their process. It was their goal because that's what they were trying to bring about, the beloved community. But then they operated as though it had already happened. They operated, let's operate as though this beloved community we're striving for and are a long ways away from, let's operate as though it's already here. And that really shifted a lot of their approaches. And I think it's just a great example of the both and, this product, this thing we want to reach. But let's behave as though that is that is there. So I think the both and, one of the, one of the both ands that I also think about a lot is hope. I'm a huge believer in hope. Uh, some days it's really hard, <laughs> particularly, you know, news. But a big believer in hope because if you just think, and this has really been informed by my parenting, my, my kids want to do things. And I'm like, ah, I'm not quite sure that I'm okay with you doing that. And then my partner will say, well, what were you doing in fourth grade? I'm like, I was doing all sorts of things that I don't want them doing, right? I was racing freight trains on my BMX bike. I was doing all that. And they're like, well, they just want to do this. I'm like, yeah, but that's not okay. I think there's something about cell phone cameras and social media and these things that are true in the world and are horrible. A hundred years ago, we might have read about them in our local newspaper. Or probably not, because the local newspaper just didn't cover things beyond that. And reading about a war in Ukraine a hundred years ago might have been challenging or, or difficult. But it's a completely different visceral experience of watching a video of a father sings to his daughter as she dies, holding her hand. Like there, You can read about that, and you can watch that, and there's a different physical experience. It's one thing to read about that or not read about that, have it be completely unknown, versus watching video of it, right? And so what is the, I'm really interested in what the visceral experience of, one, knowing about a lot more of the horrible things that are happening in the world, and then the visceral knowing and how that is different. And one of the things that, uh, as I work with a lot of um, college folks, the the student mental health crises are not going up. They're going up exponentially. What's fueling that? And I think there's a lot of things going in there. But I think one of that is just the exposure to so much trauma all around them. But hope is the belief I'll give you a couple definitions. One is from Shane Lopez. I think there's a book over here. He defined hope as the combination of belief and agency. So his definition of hope is that tomorrow can be better than today, and I have a role in making that happen. Improvement is possible, and there's something I can do. It's not my job to make that happen, but there's something I can do. This goes back to our conversation in leadership. I'm, I'm going to contribute in some little way, right? And there's hope. And if you don't have hope, then you just give up. And I think cynicism is just a way for smart people to justify their disengagement. <laughs> and I, I love this notion uh, of critical hope and, and, and maybe someone for you to talk to uh, on this podcast would be Kari Grain. Who yeah, is that book Vancouver. is powerful. Yeah. yeah her book, uh, Critical Hope, and she pulls from Jeffrey Duncan Andrade and, and other folks in South Same. Africa. And I've sort of, I love equations. So I, I, would, def I would describe critical hope on, based on their work as Three things. Critical hope equals an equity lens plus possibilities plus responsibility. And so seeing the world, as we've talked about, the way it really is, and something else is possible, right? It may not be inevitable. It may not be about to happen, but it's possible. And what's, what's a responsibility I can take in contributing to that? Not making it happen. It's not all on me, but what, what can I do? And and her book just really speaks to that in a very embodied way was my experience. I mean, I, I listened to it. And so that a very embodied way of what that does. And then also, if you just see the world as everything's going to be great, so I don't have to do anything, right? Or if you just see the world as everything's going to be terrible, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> it's just inevitable, right? But possibility, and I have a role to play. What would that look like? What could that be? What's my contribution? Where do I want to do that in a way that makes sense for, for my skills, for my talents, for my positionality, for my identities? I think it's really interesting. It's um, 
you know, I've done sexual violence prevention for a long time. And there's a lot of things I have to say about that topic that people just don't want to hear from a, from a guy. They, they don't want to hear that perspective from a man. And I used to be really frustrated with that. And then I just thought, but there's a lot of things that they will hear from me that they won't hear from women or won't hear from people of color. You know, if, if a, a feminist, which uh, says this, then they dismiss it for all of these reasons. But if I say it, they go, oh, that's interesting. I had never thought about it like that. And so how do I recognize that and, and leverage to make the biggest difference that I can? And not focus on what's the difference I wish I could make that people don't want to hear, but how can I ma make a difference? How can I contribute going into that? Yeah. Yeah, you just, you said a lot that have gotten me thinking. I'll put the Critical Hope book in the show notes. It's quite intriguing. And I just yesterday was talking to students about how important it is to resource yourself and the things that inspire and motivate you because change is slow and there can be backlash as we're seeing now. You can move forward and then feel like everything is dismantling. And partly it can be helpful to see the scope of things that this is how social progress tends to happen um, over time. And also, it's really important to remain connected to it so that you don't get disillusioned. Um, but it isn't, again, not a Pollyanna thing, but one that motivates you forward, right? And even the, the social media you were talking about, I think on the one hand, there's been a lot of talk about what it means to see all that trauma in real time and to witness it and be able to play it over and over and over again or have it play without you even choosing to play because that's how the video is set up on Facebook. On the other hand, there's also an element of accountability that is possible because of it, um, because we can capture it on film and, you know, institutions and police officers and others get held accountable in ways they, they hadn't. Yeah. Can't um, deny it. Can't write it out of the report. Yep. Right. Exactly. Yep. We also then, as societies, need to figure out how to do things responsibly in a way that moves things forward and how to hold and heal the trauma of all of that, which isn't just in the witnessing, but in the fact that it exists, that that violence exists, right? I'm mindful that we are close to the end of our time. So I just wanted to close with a question that I'm asking a variety of guests and the guests usually choose which one of these options they want to talk about. We've just been talking about hope. So what's a practice that you regularly engage in to help you build and maintain your hope and prevent burnout in the work that you do? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Kari Grain's book, Critical Hope, she has seven principles for critical hope. And one of them is that, that hope is a practice. And I, I love that reminder, um, particularly when I don't feel hopeful. You know, positive psychology taught me that gratitude is not an emotion that you wait around to be grateful. It's a practice and you be grateful. And that brings about some of those things. And I really like that, that, that hope is a practice. And on the mornings when I read the news and things are terrible and I can't believe that this is still happening and I can't believe that there's no accountability for this. And I'm, I find myself scrolling and being outraged and I want to keep scrolling to see someone voice my outrage. Aren't people upset about this? Isn't there accountability? And then when I get that, I want more of that. And then I'm just, you know, and then I see more things that outrage me. And then, and I'm just in this looking for outrage, finding things to be outraged at, looking for other people to be outraged. And I'm just an outrage consumption <laughs> machine, uh, which is not the human being that I want to be. It's not the morning I want to have. And just think about, you know, what, hope is, I don't feel hopeful today. Okay. But hope is a practice. So how are you going to practice hope today is a very different uh, question for me than do you feel hopeful or not? But how are you going to practice hope today? And I, I would remind myself that people are paying attention to things that they never paid attention to before. I pay attention to little things. I, I, I read Rebecca Solnit talking about how the sun comes up every morning in spite of climate change, in spite of all of those things, and that there are so many reasons to see progress and, and be sustaining, that the news is a commodity to get clicks and interest and outrage is a great way to do that. And I don't want to fall into that. So again, how do I pay attention to the realities of the world? For sure. And what are some of the realities of the world that aren't being told by that news story, right? By that channel, by that source, by that Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it. And there's a lot of really cool stuff happening in the world and really cool things. And 
renewable energy is happening now at a scale that the biggest optimist never thought would be possible yet. And so we're, there's things that are happening in terms of humanity. I think about 30 years ago when I was in middle school, homophobia was not okay. It was expected. It was demanded. And if you weren't homophobic, what was wrong with you? And now I watch my kids find out about their classmate who is going by different pronouns. And I'm like, okay, how can I help you navigate this? And how do we, what do you want to do? And blah, blah, blah. And they're just like, we're just going to use their pronouns. Like, what? why are you being weird about this? Like, what, what is, and it's just like, oh, like they don't have all of this baggage. And I think, I used to think to be smart, I needed to learn more things. And having real little kids taught me uh, to be wise, I needed to unlearn more things. I needed to unlearn the messages I've been taught. I needed to unlearn my socialization. I needed to unlearn that horrible thing that happened to me when I was eight that I still carry around, making sure that doesn't happen. I need to unlearn. You know, a three-year-old looks out the window and sees a beautiful world, not because of what they know, but because of what they don't know. They're just like, wow, trees. It's green again. I thought it was winter would come and it would always be like, but it's green again. That's amazing. And you're like, that actually is amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. So cultivating hope. Meditation is another way to be with that, to get out of what I'm consuming and into what is already there. And I find tremendous renewal in nature. I live in Minneapolis and yeah, me too. <laughs> I can, I can go away to the North Shore. I can go to the woods and be in nature. I can also walk through my neighborhood and look at the tops of the trees. And I, um, I find that there's a very different experience on going for a walk through my neighborhood and looking at the sidewalk and looking at the homes and looking at the people and looking at the streets and looking at the tops of the trees where they meet the sky. Like that is a completely different experience. There is nature all around us all the time. Absolutely. Well, that's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you, Keith, for taking yeah. the time to chat with me. Always good to connect. My pleasure. This has been great. Thanks for, for letting me share and thanks for instigating. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Take care. Thank you for listening to Change Making Connections. I hope it has supported your social justice and leadership journey. This podcast was produced by the fantastic team at Alt Marketing Consulting. If you enjoyed listening to our show, please subscribe for future episodes and offer up a review wherever you catch your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for future episodes. Be well.